You are listening to Meet the Thriller Author, the podcast where I interview writers of mysteries, thrillers, and suspense books. My name is Alan Peterson, and you're listening to episode number 74. This is the first episode of 2019. I hope you had a great and hopefully relaxed holiday season and a happy new year celebration. This podcast is now entering its fourth year, which I find hard to believe. And I will be scaling back a little bit in 2019. I need to focus on my writing, uh, but I will uh, be bringing you at least one to two interviews every month with a fabulous uh, writer. So stay tuned for some more great interviews uh, coming up this year. And I'm starting 2019 with a bang. I'm interviewing Peter May, who is one of my favorite crime fiction writers. Uh, Peter May is an internationally best-selling author of several standalone novels, and he has three uh, series. He's got the critically acclaimed Enzo Files, featuring a Scottish forensic scientist Enzo McLeod. It's uh, set in France. He's got the Lewis Trilogy, uh, which is set in the uh, Scottish Hebrides, and the award-winning China thrillers, featuring Beijing detective Li Yan and American forensic pathologist Margaret Campbell. Uh, Peter May is one of Scotland's most prolific television dramatists. He garnered over 1,000 credits over a decade and a half spent as a scriptwriter and editor on primetime British television. And before quitting TV uh, to concentrate on writing novels, he was a creator of three major series, two of which are the highest rated in Scotland. May now lives in, and writes in France. His uh, latest novel, uh, Snakehead, is the fourth installment in the uh, China Thriller series, which uh, brings back forensic pathologist uh, Margaret Campbell and Detective Li Yan. And this time, the two must confront a new case of human trafficking and inhumane terrorism. I've been reading a review copy of Snakehead, and it's another great crime thriller. Peter also has another book coming out called The uh, Man with No Face. And at the time of recording this podcast a few months ago, it was scheduled to be published in January, but now that's been moved up to March. Uh, March. Uh, so just an FYI on that, uh, The Man with No Face uh, is available now for pre-order, uh, but won't be published until uh, March. Available right now is uh, Snakehead. So it's great. A lot of uh, great books uh, from Peter May uh, being published here in, uh, in 2019. So highly recommend you go uh, pick up his work. So here's my interview with Peter May. Uh, hi, everybody. This is uh, Alan Peterson with uh, Meet the Thriller Author. And for this episode of the podcast... I have uh, Peter May here, and he's an author, screenwriter, uh, creator of television dramas, and who was born in Glasgow but now lives in France, where he's joining me via Skype. Uh, Peter, thank you so much for uh, agreeing to be on the podcast. Great to be talking to you. So you have a very fascinating background. You started as a journalist and uh, then uh, became a successful television writer. Was uh, writing uh, novels in the back of your head the whole, this whole time when you were doing these other endeavors? Well, I, I wrote my first novel when I was four years old, um, if, if you can call it a novel. It was about six pages long, uh, but it was a piece of fiction. Uh, I, I, you know, I, my parents had taught me to read and write before I went to school. So with the, the limited vocabulary that I had and the limited ability I had to wield a, a crayon, I, uh, I wrote this story. Um, I think there were about maybe... 10, 12 words per page and about six pages. And it was called The Little Elf. And um, I think, you know, when you start that young and, and you, your instinct is to start writing, telling stories, then it's in the DNA, isn't it? So uh, from a very early age, I, I knew I wanted to write. And I, as a teenager, I think I wrote my very first kind of full-length book 
I started writing it when I was 14. I finished it when I was 16. It was a, a piece of teenage nonsense uh, all about um, the band I played in at that time. And uh, that, but that kind of gave me the taste, I guess, for wanting to write books, wanting to become a novelist. Uh, and I wrote a couple of things after that and still in my teen years. And, um, you know, I, I was still at school and at school originally my plan was to go to art school uh, because I spent most of my time in the art department at school. And um, the problem was that by, by my final year in school, I decided that what I really wanted to do was write. And I decided not to go to art school. That decision was uh, helped on by the fact that most of the guys and girls around me in, in art school were better than me, uh, well, in the art class at school, were better than me. So, uh, you know, it, it was an early lesson in knowing your own limitations. Um, but, it's, but the problem is, particularly back then, this is late 60s, how do you, how do you become a novelist? What, what is the career path to becoming a novelist? I went and spoke to my careers guidance officer at school and uh, said that I wanted to be a novelist, and she laughed. Uh, and, you know, that, that's, that's what it was like. There, was no, there were no creative writing courses at university in those days. Um, so there was, there was no career path, and I just purely by accident stumbled across this course that was run, a one-year full-time course that was run at a college in Edinburgh, uh, to train journalists, and I thought, well, it's not writing novels, but it's uh, it's a start in making a living as a writer. So I applied for that course and I got onto it, and that's what launched me off into a career in journalism. Oh, wow! So the whole point of the of even starting that career in journalism was because it's as close as you could get to writing. <laughs> exactly. Wow. <laughs> and so now, did you during this as you were growing up and you were reading? Did you enjoy reading? Um, crime fiction and mysteries before you started to write them? I read all sorts of things, including crime and mystery. Uh, I read, a, you know, very early on, I read a lot of the Perry Mason books, uh, Errol Stanley Gardner, and uh, I read um, the Philip Marlowe books. Um, they were big favourites. Um, but I read all sorts of things. Uh, I, I, I didn't, my original ambition was not to be a crime writer or a thriller writer, it was just to be a novelist. Um, so I read all sorts, I mean, I read all the Hemingways and uh, you know, the Graham Greene, um, a lot of different writers who were very influential, um, who very much uh, kind of guided me into a certain style of writing or taught me uh, a way of writing that allowed me to develop my own style. Um, and, and I kind of got writing crime by accident um, because really when uh, well I guess the very first book I got published was um, it was about a journalist and and that was that was because you know for years people had been giving me the advice write about what you know and uh, I never had I tried to write about all sorts of crazy things um, and eventually I took the advice write about what you know. And I was a journalist, so I wrote about a journalist. Um, and, and, and it was a, an investigative journalist. It was an investigative story. It turned into a kind of thriller. Um, and, and that set me on a kind of course. Although, you know, like two books later, I was writing a kind of big 
grand scheme political adventure story set in Southeast Asia in the time of the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia. Um, But at that point, I was really working in television. I worked in television for about 17 years. Um, And it wasn't until I quit television in 1996 with the idea of really knuckling down and trying to make a living as a writer of novels um, that that I, I, I sat down and developed an idea uh, on a theme that interested me, which was genetic engineering. Uh, and, and it turned into, because it turned out that the best way of telling this story was through the medium of a crime story, a thriller. It was the way to unpack the story I wanted to tell. And because that book was successful and the publishers wanted more of the same with the same characters, um, I found myself then, as we say in France, coincid, uh, if you like, trapped <laughs> in the genre. Not that I was um, in any way complaining about it. It's a genre that I very much liked. But, you know, the thing is that when you embark down a certain genre route, then your publishers want you to continue down that route. Your readers do too. You become known as well, Peter May, the crime writer, or Peter May, the thriller writer. Um, nobody, uh, you know, if you wrote, if you decided to suddenly write a romantic, uh, you know, heartthrob slush book, your publisher would not want you to put it out with your name on it. Uh, you know, so you'd have you'd have to you'd have to take another name to to basically publish in a different genre. So um, I have effectively stuck with the crime genre, but have chosen to write about very what I think are very different subjects and I've been pushing the boundaries of that genre uh, as far as I can. Do you find that transition hard going from writing television scripts to writing a novel? Not really. I mean, I, people ask me what, you know, are there similarities? Are there things I learned as a screenwriter that I take into my writing as a novelist? And the answer is most definitely yes. Uh, I think I, I took a lot uh, of experience with me from writing as a journalist, where you learn to write very fast. Uh, you learn to research any subject uh, at speed. Be fearless when it comes to asking people for help. Uh, as a as a as a screenwriter, you learn to use dialogue to effectively carry your plot because that's really all you have is the dialogue. So dialogue then develops plot, advances plot and develops character. Um, And the books that I wrote before I was a screenwriter, um, I go back to and look at, and the dialogue's terrible. Um, And a lot of of novelists aren't very good dialogue writers. They can be great novelists, but they're not very good dialogue writers. And the the, the one thing that I learned, the most important thing I learned writing for television was how to make dialogue really work for you. So my dialogue writing in my later work was much better than it was in my earlier work. Um, And so all those things put together, um, I write very fast. Uh, I enjoy research. um, And I use a lot of dialogue in my books to advance plot and develop character. Yeah, I was reading about the all the research. Uh, I was reading on your website all the research that you put into the the China thrillers, for example. That was 
I mean, it, seems, it appears that you like researched for like many, many months before you you even began to write that that uh, the first novel. Uh, how how was that whole process for you, and how long did it did it take you? <laughs> well, it was a kind of crazy um, idea in the first place. I mean, this was the first book that I'd written after leaving television was going to be set in in China. It was, and uh, you know, I, as as I mentioned earlier, it was on the subject of genetic engineering. It was genetic food modification. Um, it was going to be set in China because the lack of of the lack of constraints there on scientists developing uh, work along those lines. Um, uh, one of my main characters was going to be a Chinese police officer. Uh, another of my characters was going to be an American pathologist. So I had to research all these things: genetics, pathology, and the Chinese police, which was, uh, you know, I kind of. It, when I look back on it now, I think, what an idiot. Um, how, how much more difficult could I have made it for myself? Um, uh, but I was very fortunate because I got a great pathology advisor um, who is now based in San Diego. He's the medical examiner there. And um, he actually started off in Sacramento, which is when I first encountered him. Uh, and I, I got a great genetics advisor, an American living in Canada, sadly deceased now, uh, Joe Cummins. And uh, the biggest problem of all was the Chinese police. I mean, well, how was I going to get an inside line on how that whole police and justice system worked in China? This is, remember, late mid to late 90s. The internet was in its infancy. There was nothing out there about Chinese police. Uh, you couldn't find any books so, uh, on the subject. So it was, a, it, I mean, it was a really closed chapter, if you like. Um, and I had a, a lot of difficulty initially in, in tracking down somebody who could help me. Um, I, eventually, I was very lucky. Um, I, I came across a, an American criminologist called Dr. Richard Ward who had, during the 80s and the 90s, effectively trained the top 500 police officers in China in the latest Western policing techniques. Um, and he had spent a lot, a lot of time out there in Shanghai, particularly, um, and was god to the Chinese police. So um, with him on my side, I got this phenomenal introduction to the Chinese police from the inside. And so when I went out to do the research for that first book, The Firemaker, I was kind of welcomed with open arms and, and I got access to whatever I asked for. And over the next six years, as I developed that series into six books, I was backwards and forwards to China and had absolutely full cooperation of the, the authorities. In fact, I was the first Western crime writer to get that kind of access to the Chinese police. Yeah, that was amazing. I was reading that from your website, and you had access to the ambassador's residence in Beijing, and uh, a lot of uh, was, incredible access. Yeah, that was a fantastic experience. I was in the American ambassador's uh, residence uh, there. Um, I, I was in the, the, the American embassy. Uh, they were all very good to me too. Pe people are great. Uh, you, you know, one of the things that I have discovered over the years that is, as a writer researching sometimes very arcane topics, if you actually just go and ask people nicely, can you help me? They're extraordinarily generous. 
for the most part. And they give of their time and their knowledge and their know-how. And, you know, I'm eternally grateful to all these people. I mean, the, the Americans in in Beijing were fantastic. I, I got access to the embassy. I got a tour of the ambassador's residence. Uh, when I went down to Shanghai, uh, we were taken out to lunch by the American consul um, and got the inside track on everything that was going on down there. Um, so, I, you know, it, it's it's... It's also fun researching. It's great fun. I, I love it almost more than the writing. Now, and that must be, they must appreciate that as well because they, you're trying to get things right. You're trying to, you know, portray them correctly. And so they probably appreciate think, that. Yeah. I think that's important because it's important that your readers trust you, that you, that you're not, you know, you're not just making all this up. Yes, you're making up the story. You're, 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 it's fiction. But the, the background should be 100% authentic. And I think if you have your readers trust and they go with you on that and they know that you do your research and that you, you do get these things right, that it, it enhances the reading experience for them. And I read also that you've been uh, uh, made an honorary member of the, uh, is it the Chinese Crime Writers Association? Yeah. That's the an Beijing amazing honor. Of, yeah. Wow, yes. Um, that was uh, it was a while ago now. Um, but um, yeah, it was that, that was in the days that was when was that? Around about 2000, 2001, around about that time. The um, no, it must have been 1999. It the, the whole thing all began because it was the 50th anniversary of the founding of the People's Republic of China. Um, and they had a crime writers association, um, but they they, they, were, they felt that they were totally out in the cold. That they there was a you know most countries have a crime writers association, and there's an international federation of crime writers association, but the Chinese weren't members of it, and so they felt kind of out of things and a bit isolated. Um, and to celebrate the 50th anniversary of, of the republic. They were having this big event in the in the Great Hall of the People in Beijing, where they were going to give a prize for every year, a prize to a writer for every year of the the, the Republic. So fifty prizes, and there was going to be a big international prize. And uh, they asked me if I could get a letter of congratulations from the British Crime Writers Association that they could read out at this big event. You know, basically saying, you know, well done to the Chinese crime writers after 50 years. And um, so I, I went away and asked the British Crime Writers Association if they would do that. And they said, ah, sure, but, you know, why don't you talk to the um, international group, the Federation of International Crime Writers Association? Uh, so I did. I went to them uh, and they said, well, why don't the Chinese join? And I said, well, maybe they need to be invited. And they said, well, we'll invite them. Uh, so they invited the Chinese crime writers to join the international body, wrote a letter of congratulations. So I went back to Beijing with all this. And they were just, they were absolutely over the moon. They thought this was fantastic. Uh, you know, and they sent people off to go to the first international conference. And, you know, and so that's, they had this special surprise banquet for me the next time I was there in China and I was presented with the Chinese dragon of justice and made an honorary member of the 
the, the Chinese Crime Writers Association. <laughs> well, that's that's so really, really amazing. <laughs> <laughs> is it a, is it a pretty active uh, uh, market? Do you know in in China for like Chinese oh, written? Yeah. yeah. Chinese. Uh, I mean, crime in China, China crime fiction in China is, is huge. Um, you know, they published uh, the Chinese first published the um, Sherlock Holmes novels back in uh, 1912. Would you believe? Oh wow! Uh, we republished them again in the 50s under the communists. Uh, and there's this fantastic tradition in the Chinese police of serving Chinese police officers writing crime fiction. Um, and they produce these magazines that come out every two months, which are just full of stories written by serving Chinese police officers, crime stories. Um, and uh, if you're a, a policeman, you can apply to go uh, to the University of Public Security in Beijing, which is the police university, where you can take a four-week course in the history of Western detective fiction. Um, so, so this phenomenal kind of history of crime writing, just within the Chinese police, is huge in China. Crime. I know you have standalone books as well, uh, but then you wrote um, the uh, the Lewis trilogy, um, which is set in the, uh, Scotland in the islands, the outer is it. Outer Hebrides. Uh, Hebrides, yes. yes. Um, was that uh, now coming from writing a, 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 the China thrillers to something where you were a little more familiar? Um, was that did you still find that challenging doing the research and, and on, on those books? You know, during the nineties, my last sort of half dozen years in television, I produced um, a TV drama series which was filmed entirely on location on the Isle of Lewis, which is in the Outer Hebrides, um, very remote location. And uh, it, it, they were some of the most challenging years of my life because uh, you know thing, filming single camera drama entirely on location uh, in a place where the wind never stops. It's raining ninety percent of the time, uh, and it, it, you can get snow in May and June. Um, you know, it, it it's it was challenging to say the least. But I got to know that island incredibly well. And so 10 years later, when I came to the end of the China series, um, and I actually left Scotland at that point, and I was then living in France, it seemed to me that uh, that was probably a good time to start writing about some of my Scottish experiences. Given that I was now away from Scotland and had a perspective on it looking back, um, and so I decided that this setting, this island setting, would be well, pretty unique. And uh, nobody had written about it before. Um, and, and so I, at that point, I actually went back to the island to do my research. Um, and that was a strange feeling because I'd been away for 10 years. Um, but the minute I stepped off the plane and felt the wind whipping through my hair, I, I felt just like I'd come home. Uh, so it, it, it was great. People up there are fantastic. Um, I, I've just had nothing but phenomenal help from everybody. And the books have been so successful, the, 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 whole, the, the trilogy that's set up there, that, that tourism has just gone crazy. Uh, you know, they, they, these tiny little uh, islands and they get these you know, multinational cruise ships you know, that look like apartment blocks 
you know, 70 of them come into this tiny little port across the summer um, and, you know, debauch thousands of people onto the islands. And they, you know, so, I mean, the, the islands have really benefited from the fact that the books are set there and have been so successful. So it's a kind of, that's, not, that's a nice giving back sort of thing. You know? Didn't really understand anything about them or even realize that they were that populated until I read your books. Yeah. And then I went and looked yeah. and I went online and I looked at videos of the islands and stuff. I'm like, oh, that looks like a beautiful, beautiful place to be. Uh, looks beautiful, I mean, but yeah, I could see the remoteness. But yeah, one of the one of the videos showed, the, showed them getting off the, a boat. And like you said, it was a big boat i thought it would be like these little ferries <laughs> <laughs> it was like this was like a cruise ship that was docking yeah, in, the, yeah. in the port there <laughs> reading the the um the lewis man i was really taken with your um, the way you wrote that book um you, you're kind of like straddling the present and the past through your characters and then i was fascinated to read that that uh, I believe is a report of the New York Times called it. Um, I wrote it down. Split framework, which I never had heard of before. How split I, framework? <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I don't know if that's like a, a, a style or something or something. How did that come up? Come come up to your idea, and how did you even prepare to write something like that? Were you worried about doing it that way? Because it's really. I mean, it tied in beautifully, obviously, and it was um, it was great to read. I was just fascinated by that. Well, I'd never done it before, um, and I, I think it was a kind of revelation to me when I was thinking about the story that I wanted to tell, uh, which is on the face of it, a crime story. Um, and I, I was thinking about my characters and the setting and the background to the whole story. and. And it was it was one of those kind of um, bright shining light in the eyes moment when uh, I realised that the contemporary crime story was not really what the book was about. The book was about the backstory. It's it, you know the crime story is the tip of the iceberg. The rest of it is what's down there, and that and that I had to write about that and. To be able to do that, I had to split the story into two time frames: the the contemporary present day time frame, uh, which is the investigation of the crime, and the time frame that goes back to the main character's childhood and sees him up through into adolescence, uh, and uh, and how the telling of his story through that time period would inform. Uh, the, the the present day story and uh, leads ultimately to the denouement so that they, they come together in the end. Um, and having done that once in the Black House, um, I, I kind of went that way again with the Lewis man, although I went a little bit different on that because um, one, of the, one of the characters in the Lewis man is... Uh, an old man suffering from dementia or Alzheimer's, uh, and and I decided to tell some of the story from his perspective, um, and and that was very challenging because, um, well, how do you get inside the the mind of uh, someone who suffers from dementia? <clears throat> As it happens, my own father had suffered from dementia, and I'd spent um, several years looking after him. So I had a, a really good insight into that. 
and I knew that while the appreciation of what was happening there and then, what was happening around the dementia sufferer, sufferer in that moment was something that they found confusing, difficult to remember, difficult to get a handle on, sometimes forgetting altogether people that they knew well. Um, and it, comparing that to their memory of distant events, uh, which could be absolutely pin sharp. I can remember sitting with my, my dad. I used to go and take him out to a, a pub for Sunday lunch. And um, uh, and he was very confused about things. And uh, and I, I noticed that he was wearing an old watch of his that I hadn't seen for years. And I, and I said, oh, you did, had you had you lost that? Did, where, where did you find it? Um, and he said, oh, I found it in a box. And then he told me this whole story about how he had got the watch. And this was in India during the Second World War um, when he was serving out there in the army. Um, and, and this story, and it was absolutely vivid. He remembered every detail. He couldn't have told me what he ate five minutes earlier. You know, and, and that... That was um that was very interesting to tackle something from that perspective. Yeah, my my grandmother suffered from Alzheimer's as well, and so yeah, when I read it, it was, it was so spot on to what she went through, um, mm. and especially in the beginning, you know, the frustration and, and yes. like you said, like basically living in the past, you know, like like she, there were my grandparents were farmers, and so we had it, we bought a pie, and it was just the three of us, my dad and my grandma, and she started to cut the pie into like like 20 pieces because she thought all the farmers were coming in from the field to eat. Right, you know? right, like, yeah. So, yeah, so <clears throat> reading, reading your book was really uh, uh, touching the way you described that uh, so so well. And, and mm. Do you see stories everywhere, like when you're like in your everyday life, or <laughs> do, do they just keep coming in your head? Uh, sometimes, and sometimes they don't. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes it's very hard. Um it, it all depends. It's stories are strange things. Uh, I had a story rattling around in my head for years, for probably for about twenty years, um, and it was kind of based on um, a personal experience. Um, you know, when I was a teenager, I played in a band, and um, we, we were we lived in Glasgow in Scotland, and uh, we ran away from home. Um, I just turned 17 and um, and we, we left notes on the pillows for our parents and we put all the gear in the van, uh, which was a ramshackle old van, and we drove down the motorway and went to London, you know, 500 mile drive and um, uh, to, to in search of fame and fortune. Uh, uh, and of course, we ended up sleeping in the streets and uh, busking in the subway, living in underwear that you know, <laughs> would send most people running for the the exits, and uh, and and it was it it was one of those um, kind of signature experiences of your your youth, which kind of stays with you. And I and I'd always had in my head the thought that wouldn't it be great to write a story about a bunch of kids who ran off to London. Uh, and it all went horribly wrong. And for some reason, 50 years later, when they're old men, they make the return trip. 
uh, I, I never knew what that reason was, but I, I, I just like the, the idea of the parallel trips, the, you know, the, the same characters 50 years apart. Um, and uh, I was on, I was on my way, in fact, to Stornoway in the, in the, in, in the islands with a French film crew. We were going to be filming a, a piece for French television um, about the books. And we got stuck unexpectedly overnight in Glasgow on the Saturday night. And I hadn't been back in Glasgow for years. And, um, and I woke up early in the morning. It was the middle of July, so it was, it was light at five in the morning. And I, you know, I just got up and wandered the city and revisited all my old haunts, you know, where I used to work in the newspaper and, you know, where the band used to play in various gigs. And, uh, and I ended up in Central Station, uh, which is where we had come back as kids all those years before after we'd run away to London to be met off the train by, uh, you know, our dads. And I, I was kind of just sitting, you know, standing in the station, looking down that platform and remembering all that. And I suddenly, just out of nowhere, I, I realized why the guys 50 years later made the return trip. I just had a little moment of inspiration about that. And that book became uh, a book called Runaway. Um, and um, it, it, uh, it, it is on the face of it a crime story, but it's, it's in a way it's more about friendship and uh, age. Um, and it was, it was great fun to write. And a lot of it was semi-autobiographical. But, you know, there's and it, just an example of something that had been festering away in the back of my mind for all these years and then suddenly just in one moment it all it all came together but when you start writing your your novels do you uh do you i know you do obviously a lot of research but do you outline the whole thing before you start to write or do you just like once you have the idea and you got it all it's all come together you just start to write it i what i do is i spend i have a i have the the seed of an idea and i spend three to four months developing that idea, developing the characters that will populate it and doing the research required for whatever the subject matter might be. When I've got to the point where I've done the bulk of my research and I really kind of know in my mind what the story is, uh, I sit down and I write a very detailed synopsis. I do it over a space of about six, seven days. Um, and it's a scene by scene breakdown of the whole story from beginning to end. Um, which is which is exactly how I would approach the writing of a script. Um, scripts are always done with the breakdowns first, and then you write the dialogue. And um, and so what I do is I I do my very detailed breakdown of the book, um, and then I write the story itself. Um, and and what that allows me to do is when I come to do the actual writing is to devote myself one hundred percent to the quality of the writing and bringing the story and the characters to life. And when you're writing a project, do you set like goals? Like I'm going to write ten, three scenes or a thousand words? Or I get up at six o'clock in the morning. I write 3,000 words a day and um, I'm finished in about seven weeks. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's, uh, that's I have good. weekends off. I have weekends. <laughs> okay, take the weekend off. All right. Oh wow, that's uh, that's 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 amazing how 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 that all comes together for you. Yeah. And so your latest book now is "I'll Keep You Safe," and that's uh, continuing the from the Lewis. It came out in January, um, and it's part yes. of the, the Lewis. Yeah, what, can you tell us a little bit about that book? 
Yeah, it's um, I usually like to pick a theme, something to base the story around or a background to, to a story. And, and in this case, I chose something which is u- unique to the islands, and it's Harris Tweed. Um, and, and this is a, a, a woven wool cloth uh, made on the islands, which uh, at one point was, was highly fashionable around the world, um, but kind of lost its its marketplace, if you like, and almost died out. And really just in the last 10 years has had something of a, a renaissance. And that what's unique about it is that it's, it's defined by an act of the British Parliament. Uh, you know, it must be woven by hand on the islands. Um, and, uh, you know, it, 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 the, the, you cannot copy it. And it has to have a certain stamp, a seal on it that guarantees that this is the genuine article. Um, and so that was the, the, the background that I chose to set the, the story against. And I, it was a young couple who had set up a company which had exploited this growing success of the Tweed or resurrection of the Tweed. Um, and we're having a lot of success. And, um, but the, the, there's some kind of tension between this couple uh, uh, and uh, uh, the book opens in Paris when they're at the... Uh, a kind of um, exhibition, or it's not. It's, uh, it's a fair, if you like. It's a fabric fair, where all the top designers come every year, every September and every Jan- February, um, to where all the fabric makers display their wares and hope that some of the top designers will pick their fabrics for the, you know, like the London Fashion Week or New York or Paris. Um, and so they they have been at this event in Paris um, and they have a big fallout because somebody has tipped her off by anonymous email that her husband's having an affair with this Russian designer um, and they have a big blow up and uh, which turns into a literal blow up when he gets into the car uh, with this Russian designer in the Place de la République in Paris and it gets to the end of the road and blows up and he's killed and the fashion designer's killed and his his wife witnesses it, um, and that's how, that's how the book opens. And the, really, the rest of the story is about is about uh, it's an exploration of grief, her grief, um, taking the remains of uh, her man back to the island, and um, revisiting lots of memories going back to how they met and, you know, as kids and teenagers and how their relationship developed and how the business became successful. But on the way, how um, we are introduced to people who may or may not have had a grudge against him or them and who might have had a motive for killing him. Um, and so that's that's kind of how it unwinds. But most of it takes place on uh, on the island itself. Um, it's, it's very much an island set story. It just came out in paperback here um, in uh, July. I think it spent six weeks in the top ten, um, went straight in at number three. So it's 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 been really successful. Yeah, they, what what are your thoughts about uh, when uh, because they're doing very well in the in the United States too um, as well and. Were you surprised at that? Or because being that it's such an international location, or or is obviously there's a there's a uh, people that like to read those, like myself, uh, international thrillers. 
was there any uh, pushback from the publisher when you first when, when, about publishing them here in the states? Um, not really. Um, I mean, I'd been published in the states for um, quite a number of years prior to that. You know, with with varying degrees of success. I mean, I think it's true to say that um, even the top British crime writers find it hard to sell books in the states. Uh, certainly, in the same to the same degree that they, you know that they do in in the UK, um, and I think that's probably true as well of, of American crime writers and, and their sales in in, in Britain. And I, I, there's a kind of cultural thing goes on there. I think uh, people are kind of generally more comfortable reading about um, places they know and the cultures that they know about. Um, and I think I have spent my entire career writing about places that most people have never <laughs> seen or heard of sometimes. Um, and, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I'm, and I've seen just quite recently the sales figures in the States, and, um, and they've been very surprising because I've actually been out selling a lot of the top British crime writers in the States, you know, people who outsell me in Britain. Um, and that and that seems strange to me, um, uh, but but great. Obviously, I'm I'm really happy. I mean, I've done what now five six tours of the US um, over the years, um, and 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 met a huge number of American readers who um, are very loyal readers, and uh, there's a great following, and um, and it's always fantastic to meet them um, and, and I always get such a warm welcome you know, I mean I've been all over all the different bookstores and uh, it's it's um, it's very gratifying uh, you know to, to do that well in the States and, and, and to know always know personally a lot of those readers because I've done so many tours and uh, so what are you working on now uh, what's your what's your next uh, project well the, the, the next book coming out um, in January, um, and I think we're almost synchronised now. Publication between the UK and the US. Uh, the next book coming out is a book I wrote forty years ago, um, and uh, it was always it was a story I was always very very proud of. It's set in Brussels in the winter of nineteen seventy nine, just before. Um, a British general election, um, and, and one of the main themes in, in the book is Europe and Britain's place in Europe. And of course, you know, here we are, forty years on, and, and that's the story hasn't changed. You know, that, that is that that is the main political topic of discussion these days: Britain and Europe. You know. um, but it's a thriller. Um, uh, it's a political thriller, and um, I, my editor read it and said. He loved it and said, "We've got to republish this." And I said, "Well, not not as it is. I have to I have to look at that manuscript again." Um, so I went back and reread the manuscript, and I was quite su surprised by lots of it. Um, uh, I, I could see where a lot of my writing style had developed from. Um, but as I mentioned earlier, uh, the, the the one thing about it that that I didn't like. Um, was the dialogue <laughs> uh, because it, that was written pre my career as a screenwriter 
So I did a I, I did a revision of the book, and and the the, the thing that I that I did most work on was the dialogue. And so I did a lot of rewriting of the dialogue, but the rest of it, I, I, apart from a very gentle polishing, I left pretty much as it is, and I didn't change the story in any way. Um, and I, you know, I, I look at it now in its present form and think it's probably one of the best things I've written. Um, it's called The Man With No Face, um, and uh, it, it deals with some interesting subjects. Well, fascinating. Looking forward to that in January. And it's going to kick off the whole tour, and uh, you think you'll be coming back to America for that one? Uh, I Well, re- recently I've been curtailing my promotional activities. Uh, just because I seem to be spending my life um, touring the globe, uh, you know, living out of suitcase, you know, uh, living out of hotel rooms. Um, and I, I was, to be honest, really quite ground down by it. I did, I think two years ago, we, I think the straw that broke the camel's back was um, a tour of Australia and New Zealand, um, which I hadn't wanted to do but publishers were very keen that I go out. Um, and as it turned out, I, it, it was a fantastic tour. I, I mean, I really, really uh, enjoyed it uh, big time. I didn't enjoy the flight out or the flight back. It's a long flight. Um, uh, but it was great there, and, and the book's very successful there. Um, and I got the chance on the way back because I took a round-the-world ticket and, and got to spend a, a month in a beach house in Balboa Island in Southern California on the way back. So that was um, that was really worth it. But it, you know, these these kind of trips are absolutely exhausting, and and it was just kind of one thing after the other. I think I'd been immediately before that I'd been doing a festival in Barcelona. Um, after, immediately afterwards, I was, I think, had a tour in uh, mid Europe, Czech Republic, Poland, places like that. I think I was in the September, I was at the festival in Italy. And, it, you know, so it just, I just seem to be constantly on the go and um, I'm not getting any younger. <laughs> and so I kind of, I kind of decided that I was going to really cut back on all that and really pick and choose what I was going to do. Um, and um, so that's that's a long answer to say I don't know about um, coming back. I'd love to come back, um, uh, but you know, US tours are uh, punishing, simply because you know, from, from the publisher publisher's perspective, they cost so much money, and so they try and they try and uh, keep the cost down. So you you kind of like people say. Oh, well, where are you going on your tour? And you go, well, I'm going to California, I'm going to, you know, Arizona, I'm going to New York, I'm going to... And they say, oh, that's fantastic. Um, you know, you get to see all these places. I say, no, I don't. You know, I get to see the airport, a hotel, uh, a bookstore where the event's taken place, and then I'm back in the hotel, and then I'm back at the airport the next morning. And it's and that's how it, that's how it goes on. So you kind of live in this weird traveling bubble of you know, airport, hotel, event, hotel, airport. And you don't you don't see anything of the country at all. You know, I'd much rather, if I'm coming back, take a much more leisurely thing, spend time. I've got lots of friends in the States, so, you know, go and stay with friends in, in Minneapolis uh, or in Sacramento. And, you know, 
and and just take my time and do it that way. Um, but you know that costs more, and publishers don't really want you to. Yeah, yeah, they just <laughs> want to those kind of bills. Next, <laughs> next, next. Uh, so you don't even know yeah. what city you're in. <laughs> oh wow. Okay. Well, hopefully, uh, uh, hopefully, then you can uh, you can do that on on your own terms, and and you can enjoy it some a little bit more. <laughs> mm. That's the special. Uh, yeah, I'd love to. I'd I really love to do that. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, Peter, I'm not going to take any more of your time, but I really want to uh, thank you for uh, for being on the podcast and uh, talking to us about your work. Uh, it's uh, been a lot of fun talking with you. Well, it's been a great pleasure. and um, um, I, I, I hope the sun is shining there in California. It's shining here in France. Um, yeah, well, I'm, a, so, I'm in Northern California in San Francisco, so it's a, it's a little foggy. Ah, <laughs> uh, right. My, my daughter's in San Francisco right now. Oh, really? Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. she is. Um, so, um, and she's been having a bowl. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, well, you mentioned Minneapolis. Well, originally we were living in Minnesota, but we've been living in here in California for about 10 years now. So in, in San yeah. Francisco. So, <laughs> well, I know Minneapolis well, I've been there many times. Uh, got good friends there. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's, a, that's an interesting connection. Yeah. That's where my, uh, my father was from and my, my grandparents. So yeah. 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 A lot of history you, there. You'll be a big um, uh, William Kent Kruger fan, then. Oh, I am absolutely. Yeah, him, uh, John Sanford. But yeah, I, I really love his yeah. uh, his his work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, one of my favorite books in recent years was was uh, Kent's book um, "Ordinary Grace," um, which is set, I think, in early sixties Minnesota. Oh, I, don't know. Uh, I haven't read that one. If you haven't read it, if you haven't read it, you have to read it. It's, I think it's destined to become a modern American classic. Oh. Really good. Put that one in that. I'm writing that one down. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much again. I appreciate it. And it was a really nice talking to you. Okay, great. All the best to you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Meet the Thriller Author. I'd like to ask you to please review and rate this uh, podcast over on iTunes. It really helps me get the word out. If you take a few seconds of your time to uh, do that, it would be much appreciated. You can also visit my website at thrillingreads.com forward slash podcast for show notes on this episode, as well as information about the uh, podcast in general. And you can also sign up for my mailing list there. You'll be getting uh, special offers from our guests, as well as information, uh, behind the scenes information on the podcast. And uh, please do visit my author website at alanpeterson.com. I appreciate your support. And so until next episode, I will talk to you then.